Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Juan S. La Rosa Fuentes. Juan is a researcher in the Department of Sociocultural Study at Iteso University and a professor at the School of Journalism and Public Communication. In 2018, he published his paper, Journalistic Narratives and Collective Memory of an Urban Catastrophe, the Case of the April 22nd Explosion in the Guadalajara Press. Let's hear what he has to say about the 1992 Guadalajara explosions. Hi, Juan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, uh, I'm very glad to be here. Thanks. 
Well, welcome. Um, could, could you start off by giving our listeners a rundown uh, on your research focus and uh, in the study of communication? Yes. Well, uh, I'm being a research scholar for the last 10 years, and uh, my research is mainly focused on political communication, journalism, and history of media. So um, I work about, uh, my work is about what's happening here in the Mexican media, but also about uh, elections and uh, how journalists do their job. Uh, so basically, just, that's the universe where I move on. Shifting gears a little here um, to talk about the disaster. Um, by April 19, 1992, residents of downtown Guadalajara's Reforma district had already started to complain to local authorities about the strong gasoline smell coming from the sewage pipes. And then by the 21st of April, the odor was making headlines. What was the response to these complaints? Well, um, I think that uh, the personnel of the municipality and uh, people from, from the state government, uh, they sent some people to register what was happening. But um, what we know now is that they, they failed to really measure the risk of what was happening uh, and they failed to take action uh, very quick. Uh, they would have to, to evacuate all the people that were living uh, in that part of the, of the city and, uh, and that would save many lives. But they were very slow at their assessment of the situation uh, and then it happened, uh, this big explosion that killed many, many people. And, and, and walk us how, how uh, at 10 a.m. the explosion began. This was on the 22nd, the next day. What were some of the accounts from those who experienced this disaster? I mean, it was, it was in the morning, and um, there was some... This this uh, very conservative politician that many years later said that uh, God was operating at that moment because it, it was after the time that the people were traveling to to work and to school. So the the streets were more or less empty in the sense that all the people were already uh, working or at their school. Uh, so it was around, it was before 10 a.m. And uh, suddenly the, um, the blocks and the concrete of all, all that part of the city started to, to just explode. And it was several blocks that occurred this. And uh, well, people were very scared. Uh, they were trying to figure out what was happening. And suddenly that part of the city became like a war zone. Uh, there were like big holes and Many of the buildings were just uh, teared down and uh, people were trying to look to, for, for their relatives. And uh, fortunately, it was not, uh, if it was, the, if the explosions were like one or two hours before, there would be more and more casualties. Now, what was the initial response uh, to the explosion from the gov government officials when it all started? Well, it was a, a lot of confusion. I think that there were no protocols about uh, how to react to these kind of uh, situations. Uh, we had like a very, a very young uh, um, Protección Civil, which is like civil protection 
uh, brigade, and they really didn't know how to react. And this, mm. this had a similar pattern what happened with uh, the 1985 earthquake in Mexico City that also devastated the, 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 the capital of the country. And in both occasions, in the earthquake and in the explosions, what happened here is that uh, people like society, like the community, were the one who were in charge of rescuing people. They started to, uh, to get organized. Uh, they started to, to, to start making holes in the ground and, uh, and taking all the materials from the ground to start helping people going out. Uh, and and uh, the government response was really, really slow, um, was really politicized. And they were also trying to, um, they, they were trying to, to, to control the image of what was happening because the ultimate responsible was this uh, state controlled uh, enterprise, which is Pemex. Uh, which is the one who controls uh, the oil here in Mexico, and they were responsible for what happened. So they were trying to to not make uh, a lot of fuss about this, but it was impossible to to not do that because it was a really big explosion and many people were were dying. So where the people was actually the one who uh, who solved the problem or who was in charge of of dealing with this problem in the first days and hours. Can you help us uh, understand Pemex's role in the disaster? Um, And and did their monopoly of gasoline in Mexico uh, and and perhaps their alleged embezzlement have anything to do with the situation, how the situation was handled? Sure. Uh, I mean, Pemex is uh, a state monopoly uh, in Mexico. Nowadays, we have, uh, is not the only one who, who is in the market. There are many other firms, but uh, in during the 90s, there was only Pemex, and, and Pemex was the one who controlled everything about uh, oil in Mexico. So they had this big um, refinery, or not refinery, like this big plant, but it was inside of the city. Uh, so that was prob- the first problem, and it was it was not near to the wealthiest part of the city, as you would imagine. Uh, it's, it, it was near to, um, uh, uh, well, well, like, like the lowest income people in, in the city. Uh, mm-hmm. And in that moment, we didn't know that. But uh, 30 years later, we know that during that time, it started to, uh, Pemex had a, a big problem about like criminal gangs trying to, to steal uh, oil. So what they do now, and now it's a big problem, is that they make holes in the tubes and the pipes of uh, uh, where they where they um, uh, where the oil goes. So they did this uh, this hole. We still didn't know don't know exactly who do, did that. Uh, it, it's like a mix between people inside Pemex and and people outside because it's a big net of corruption. I mean, uh, criminals cannot act alone. They need to have uh, people inside the company to, to do these kind of things. And, um, and they didn't control that leak. And the leak just started to, to go to the sewers of, of that part of the city. And uh, 
it became a bump and we don't we don't actually know what happened it could be like uh uh i don't know like a stove or something lighting a match and then everything blow out so uh it was a mix between um corruption and people trying to steal that kind of oil from uh from pemex wow so I mean, the officials at the time were quick to point fingers at the local cooking oil company, La Central. Uh, and w was there any culpability there? What, what was the was this an attempt to distract from the narrative that was inevitably evolving? Yeah, I mean, the thing is that uh, <clears throat> they wanted to find really, really soon responsibles. Uh, but but they didn't want to to make a, a big uh, uh, investigation, a big research about this, uh, because there were many people involved here, and it would be like a very complicated process for the whole state. So they just they just focus on local people, uh, which La Central was is uh, is part of uh, Pemex, and at the end uh, the official version is that Pemex was responsible for the catastrophe but we don't know exactly who was responsible. At the end, uh, the mayor of Guadalajara was in jail for almost 10 years, I think. And mm. some other people went to jail, but we really exactly, went, we don't know what what, uh, uh, what happened. We don't have like, like for sure this research about exactly like what I'm telling you is like some of the, the best speculations of what we know would happen, but we don't have really, really a technical um, truth of what happened at, 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 at the moment. So uh, in the paper I wrote, in more in sociological terms, I explained that it's still like a, a wound open because we, as a society, we haven't had a closure of what, what happened there. Uh, many of the people who lost their lives or lost some members of their body or got injured, they still don't have uh, like um, a repair from the state. Uh, and, and so it's, it's still a process that it's open. So at, at that moment, they focus on, on local authorities, but they really didn't want to go up in the ladder of chain. In, in your paper, um, I, I, you state that it is uh, for us to begin to understand what happened we must describe and analyze the changes in, your, in our daily lives. In this pro process of analysis and reconstruction in the wake of the disaster, the act of remembering plays a crucial role in finding meaning. In narrating the past, individuals and society can begin to understand causes and consequences of a tragedy like what happened in Guadalajara. Um, this is very interesting to me because this is what we're doing here uh, on the podcast. You know, we're remembering historical events and, and trying to, to continue to understand them. Um, how does how do you think that this exercise helps us as a society process and, and, and what role do journalists play in doing so? Well, this is very important because uh, the way we make sense of the past uh, is the way we can deal with our present. So in this case, uh, when we don't have any assurance of what really happened, and when we when we have a weak state that cannot held accountable uh, for people that are responsible of what happened, and especially when we don't have the opportunity to express ourselves in the sense of of making monuments or 
or um, crying for the people who, who were lost in our way, uh, uh, it makes a, a, a fracture in, in, in the collective memory in the sense that we'll, we still, every, every year we're still mourning to those people, uh, but we really don't know what, what, what happened to them. And many of them, and there are many people who are still alive, they, they have the tragedy inside their bodies because they, uh, um, they, they lost one arm or they lost one leg. And they say that every day that they take a shower, for example, and they see that they don't have the leg or the arm, they remember what happened that day and they remember that they're like, the wound is still open. Uh, so uh, what many of these uh, people want and many of these collective collectives want is to, to make this uh, investigation uh, and at the end to know what really happened and uh, to help people accountable. And in this sense, uh, uh, journalists, is, the, the, the work of journalists is very important because every, it's like a ritual. Every year, uh, uh, Mexican journalists, especially in Guadalajara, they go every year to the same part of the city uh, to report uh, what's happening there. And they know exactly what is going to happen. It's not about the breaking news, but they go every year to the church where they have this mass. And, and when they, in the mass, they remember the people. And then after the mass, they march in a silent march to, the, to downtown and, 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 and uh, journalists uh, go with all these people and report what's happening. And then the journalists go again to that part of the city and report how a new wall just um, was uh, covered, part of the disaster, of how uh, the, the signs of the disaster are just blurring and how people is starting to, uh, uh, to forget about this because uh, it's starting to get many, many decades now. I was, uh, and now I'm 41 and I was at the, at the moment uh, I was like 12 years old. So many, for example, many of my students don't know what happened because they, they weren't alive and, 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 and that memory is fading. So uh, that's the importance of journalism. How was the disaster reported outside of Mexico? Well, I mean, uh, the, the, in that moment, uh, we still have like the, the one ruling party in Mexico. Uh, so it was a very controlled press uh, in the rest of the country. Uh, I mean, uh, many people describe it as semi-authoritarian. It's not like a, a total control, but uh, um, many people like don't, didn't know at the moment what was happening. And they also tried to, to control what, what, ha what was happening outside uh, in, in Mexico. So what I reviewed at the moment is that there was not a lot of coverage of what was happening. Uh, it was kind of a curious thing or like, this scary thing that happened in other parts of the world, like a, a very short <clears throat> uh, coverage, like one minute, like, oh, see what's happening well, oh, what's scary? Okay, now let's go and see what's happening in the weather. Uh, so it was not like a very uh, a full coverage, a robust, robust coverage. Uh, but then I, I know that many companies have come to... Uh, to, to report what happened. Like I know that that's, there's a, a story in Discovery Channel and there are like many documentaries about what happened because it was really, really a big disaster in, in terms of ur urban terms. 
and and that it can happen in many other uh, in in other cities. And actually, I, I can say that this is not a totally solved problem in Guadalajara. At at some point, like we still have like oh like it's we have this smell in the sewers. What's happening? And they go and like there's still some things wow. there, and then. Uh, and, and 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 they ne- they now know how to deal with that, but I think it's not like uh, something that we have just rid of uh, uh, because there are very old pipes and, uh, and 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 many things that that needs to be repaired. So we are anything that we're not totally safe. I mean, I'm not saying that it's going to explode tomorrow, but uh, uh, I think that that's the other thing that we haven't like deal with that, like saying like, hey, we have to take out this company from here. It, it hasn't to be near to, to the city and we need to change all the pipes and that. We haven't done that. Wow. So at the end of the day, I always ask our experts, if you had to pick one person or thing, it could be a concept that is to blame for the deadly 1992 Guadalajara explosions, who or what would that be? Corruption. I would say that it's corruption uh, because uh, I think that uh, Pemex has always been a very corrupt uh, company uh, in the sense that it has been like uh, the golden eggs chicken from Mexico. Like it's it, it's been so wealthy in terms of oil that all the time they are extracting not only oil from the soil, but also the money that that, that oil produces. And not for the people, many for financing elections and stuff. And, and many times they uh, they cut the budget to have uh, safe safe places to work. Uh, so that's part of, what, of, of the reasons of, of why this um, disaster occurred. And also corruption in the government, because uh, we as a state haven't been able after all these decades to to really go to terms of what happened in the sense like saying, okay, this is what really happened, A, B, and C. Uh, and then uh, we're gonna hold accountable people, no matter who is, is that. And then we're gonna repair uh, to the victims uh, all this damage. And then we're gonna change all this system of extracting oil uh, uh, with Pemex and making a safer company and a safer environment. And I think, all that it's just getting uh, in front of, of, of trying to uh, end with all this thing, it's, it's corruption. Well, Juan, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us understand uh, this terrible disaster. And I, I promise to, to keep, keep remembering all, all of the, make sure everyone doesn't forget. Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca, for the opportunity of talking with you and all the people who are listening. And I appreciate the space for talking about this. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Alarmy. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. Um, I, my, I just have to say, my jaw was dropped when he was talking about the corruption inside of, of Pemex. I mean, I'm so glad we had Juan on. Uh, yeah, because we were thinking... I mean, and he even said this is still like there hasn't been a verdict, right? Which is so frustrating for everyone involved. But 
I, I mean, we just were, we kind of brushed off the corruption inside of Pemex as like super speculative, but it sounds like there's a little bit more to it than that. And yeah, it was really crazy to hear. Yeah, we definitely touched on that. Um, I, I think the one, yeah, I would agree with Amanda. I think the one thing that sort of resonated with me was um, how real uh, the, the, the pain is of not having closure for one mm-hmm. of these things, especially because yeah. when you look at, because we, we do a lot of, um, you know, I don't know, environmental disasters or disasters that are sort of out of, out of people's control, uh, natural disasters, right? And in those cases, you know, there's fallout and there are problems with responses. But in this case, something happened that caused this. Mm. Th- this was not natural. This was something, hap- something happened. And, and the fact that they are not able or perhaps refuse uh, to get to the bottom of it or, or just there's too much unknown about it is uh is it it makes it even more tragic yeah and the fact that also juan was saying that the government their first they were slow to react in their emergency response but what they did do was start to try to like do press and like cover up their involvement and like pass the buck and that the actually the citizens were the ones who had to sort of deal with the actual emergency response is just so frustrating so i'm I don't know what you think about our verdict, Rebecca. What what were your overall thoughts? Well, I, you know, I was struck by the, you know, information about the gangs drilling holes. That to me was was shocking in that mm-hmm. there it, it was it, it was a big problem at the time where the, it, it just reeks of corruption right because the the government is covering up these uh gangs that were essentially stealing from within and 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 just like how how that little hole because we remember in the episode we kept saying how is it possible that this little hole you know uh, uh caused such a big disaster and and how how did that hole get there like that explaining how that little hole could have gotten there to me was was shocking um you know just just the idea that that these people are 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 stealing gas gasoline and just leaving holes in the sewage system around the city and 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 as a as a in an in the aftermath you know he was explaining that the the system hasn't even been replaced or fixed um it could Mm -hmm. it, it, it was very upsetting definitely yeah to to hear um i i think that we got it right i wish i wish i had known more about the gangs and 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 what was happening like inside that kind of corruption but of course if the the press is so controlled coming out of the uh, of the country and coming out of the the disaster i i can uh, i can see how um that was kind of like brushed under the rug um right but uh, I think ultimately that still falls under corruption. So I feel I feel like we we sadly nail hit the nail on the head. Yeah. So we sent government corruption to jail and we slapped Primex, uh, uh, Pemex, 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 Pemex. Um, yeah. So so that's I think I mean that sounds good to me. Yeah. I'm glad I'm glad we you know we normally don't get it right. <laughs> so it, it felt. Um, I felt like oh, okay, we did our we did our best on this. One. <laughs> we got we got it a little. We understood at least 
a little bit. Maybe we should be interviewing ourselves for expert for some of these episodes because we're getting there. I mean, yeah, you get a right. you get a hundred episodes under your belt, Amanda. And technically, I think Malcolm Gladwell said you're an expert in something. Uh, <laughs> no, what is his rule? It's ten thousand hours. Ten thousand hours. So we don't have that yet. No, we well, are... we're we're all pretty advanced. So I I, I mean, maybe I don't know, I, we can probably do it in five thousand hours. Five thousand. Oh, between the three of us. Then we True. Just, <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, I guess. I guess we have three point three. <laughs> we just need three point uh, three thousand three hundred hours. <laughs> uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but yeah, no, we we. I, I I feel good with our verdict here, and you know what he was talking about? How like it, it dawned on me that we love to blame because it helps us process and you know, hopefully move on, right? Um, and and I, I just, re- it just like dawned on me. I was like, oh, that's why it feels so good. <laughs> yeah, even though we're doing this just in our own minds. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it really is satisfying. And you walk away from these episodes, and I hope people do who are listening at home, feeling like, you know, a little bit of a weight off. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we should get a Peabody. Anybody else? <laughs> I, I hey, I I would agree. I mean, I wouldn't like reject it. <laughs> I mean, if anybody in the alarmy uh, knows any um, and I don't mean to skip directly to corruption, but if they know anybody on the Peabody board, maybe slip our name in there and give us a few extra ticks. I don't know how they do the voting there, but. Mm. If you can kind of sneak us in there, I feel like we deserve it, mm. but I don't know how to do it. So maybe if somebody could hook us up, that would be cool. Have you not learned anything, Chris? Look, if... Um, I know, especially from our Olympics episode. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Remember? Yeah. The, the, in the Olympics, they, I mean, everyone che- everyone's cheating, so might as well join in on the fun. Hey. Mm. Mm. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we get that email. Um, well... Thank you to Juan, and as always, thank you to Chris and Amanda and the entire Larmy. We're together. We are getting down to the bottom of who's to blame for all of history's greatest tragedies. That's right. So, if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite 
of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now our interview with Oliver Catlin. Oliver has been working in the arena of sports, anti-doping science and dietary supplement research and testing for more than 15 years. He is the president of Banned Substances Control Group. Let's hear what he has to say about the Russian Olympic doping scandal. Hi, Oliver. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you, Rebecca. Appreciate it. So could you start off by giving our listeners a little background on your anti-doping research and work? Sure. Uh, I'm Oliver Catlin. I'm the president of Banned Substances Control Group. I've been uh, working in and around this field for a little bit more than 17 years. Uh, I cut my teeth at the UCLA Olympic Analytical Laboratory, which is the lab my dad started in 1982 for uh, to do drug testing for the Los Angeles Olympic Games. And the laboratory grew into the largest of its kind in the world over his career and serviced not just the Olympics, but also the NFL, the NCAA, uh, minor league baseball, uh, and U.S. military and others. So it's been uh, certainly a rewarding ride through uh, anti-doping for 17 years. So has hope doping always been uh, prevalent among athletes in the Olympics? Uh, when did it start becoming a problem or, or really popping up? I mean, there's there's been a history of use of substances to enhance performance as long as the Olympics games have really been around. It stretches way back to ancient times where they were using herbs to run faster and farther. Uh, but obviously, it's been modernized in its current form uh, with the World Anti-Doping Agency and the World Anti-Doping Agency prohibited list. That structure has been around for about 20 years or so by now. And And why... Was the uh, was WADA the World Anti Doping Agency started in 1999 uh, by the International Olympic Committee? Uh, there was really a desire to have an independent approach, an organization that could uh, marshal anti doping activities around the world, um, and so that had been previously managed by the IOC uh, Medical Commission. And so that was separated and given as a sole role for the World Anti-Doping Agency to continue to pursue and grow. And what was the purpose uh, for the organization initially or still? Uh, It's really to handle the anti-doping rules and regulations that are in place for the Olympic movement and any of the signatories uh, to the Olympic movement. So sports can other sports can sign uh, and say that they will use those same rules in the course of their own sports. So that's been done in places like golf and other realms. Tennis have adopted those same rules. Uh, so that's that's the structure that essentially governs amateur sport and anti-doping for the amateur sport environment. Now, speaking more specifically about the Russian doping scandal, um, I'd like to talk about the director of the Moscow Drug Testing Lab, 
Grigory Rachenkov. Uh, sure, Grigory. Yeah, who who is said to have been the architect of the Russian team's cheating scheme at the Sochi Olympics in 2014, um, which we will get to in a second. Now, Rachenkov had been working in drug testing labs since the 80s up until 2011 when he pleaded guilty to drug trafficking charges in Russia. Um, but then in 2012, his charges are dropped and he's invited to join the testing experts for the London 2012 Olympics. What can you tell us about Rachenkov's career up until then? And, and why was the London Olympics such a crucial part of the cheating scandal two years later? Well, Grigory certainly has uh, an interesting career. It does stretch back to the 80s. We, in fact, know Grigory, Grigory from the 80s. Uh, he showed up as part of a U.S.-Soviet uh, anti-doping collaboration that uh, my father and others started uh, in and around the, I think it was 82, 83, somewhere in there. So uh, Grigory actually visited our laboratory here in the U.S., uh, I met him, I was six or eight years old or something at the time. Um, but I, I remember it uh, like it was yesterday. He came with uh, some of the other uh, um, folks that ran Russian sport and they crushed my hand in the <laughs> in a handshake on the patio. Um, but I mean, it, it stretches back to then. He was in and around the anti-doping environment back then. Uh, there was a previous instance where people had thought that the Soviets uh, had a doping scheme going on in and around the, the Seoul Olympic Games. Uh, and there was some discussion of a boat being in the harbor at those Olympics to pretest athletes to see if their, the drugs that they had used were still showing up in the urine samples. Uh, and if they were, then they wouldn't compete. If they weren't, then they went ahead to compete. So, I mean, the, the history stretches back to that sordid affair. And, uh, you know, Grigory had uh, become the um, director of the Moscow Lab in 2005. So uh, it's anybody's guess exactly what was going on in that 2005 to 2014 period. Uh, he's he's written a book now about it uh, that, I, that I've read and, and is certainly fascinating to read and consider. Uh, but there was there was a lot going on. I mean, you know, he was he was at one point doping athletes himself with a, a scheme that involved uh, putting steroids in liquor and, and providing them to athletes. The plan was that, that it would be a short acting effect of the steroid and it would clear the body quickly based on being given in that way. Uh, so there was a short window of detection for those athletes. Um, and that was sort of his direct role in, in doping athletes beyond the broader scheme that, uh, that the Soviets were involved in as a whole. And I believe he had developed technology to be able to uh, trace um, substances at a, you know, at a longer period for a longer period of time, much later on in the process. He did. That's the the ironic element of this is that uh, that Gregory and one of his colleagues had a research paper that looked into uh, the longer term detection of oral terinobol, uh, which was a steroid that was fairly common, very powerful oral steroid. Uh, so they had come up with a test that could extend the window of detection for oral terinobol. 
Uh, it extended it from maybe 20 days to a period of several months. And the irony is that if you look back retrospectively, uh, there have been a number of Russian athletes that have been caught for doping retrospectively uh, in and around the London Games. Uh, and many of those have been caught, ironically, for oral terenobol with this new longer term detection method. So it was kind of fascinating that on the one hand, he's, he's out there doping athletes. And on the other hand, uh, him and his colleagues created uh, some technology that's still uh, in use today and allows the overall system to have a much longer window of detection for a fairly important drug. So now I, I know that we talk about the Russians, um, you know, because they had all this whole complicated process of how they cheated in that particular Olympics. We talk about them uh, most. But were there other uh, countries that were also cheating as well? Um, I mean, there's always that question. I think there were some questions about uh, an African nation at the time. I forget which one, but I mean, they're not they're not alone in in doping. I think what was unique was the breadth and scope and scale of the scheme and how many people it involved throughout the realm of Russian sport. This was not a simple scheme to carry out. I mean, during the Olympic Games, they were passing samples through a, a hidden mouse hole that had been constructed in the laboratory. And in the room next door, there were literally Russian agents that had set up an operation to get into the urine samples, switch the urine samples with clean samples, and then feed those back into the laboratory. And at the same time, they were also... Uh, aware of the what are supposed to be secret codes that the athletes get when they uh, provide a urine sample, they're provided with a code. And those codes are typically only uh, known by the, the body that does the collection. The testers aren't supposed to know it. Uh, it's only supposed to be connected with a sample when, when and if there's any kind of positive result found. But in this case, they knew the codes, they knew which samples to switch, uh, and it was a, an elaborate scheme. And I think, I hope that uh, Russia was unique in perpetrating that kind of a scheme in, in today's general realm of, of sport. Now, what was the process for them eventually being caught? Um, you know, it, it had started to come out that there were some issues. There was a German investigation that had been done uh, on this whole issue. And, and Grigory had been talking fairly openly to the, these German producers. And so it, 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 he, the, the cat was essentially out of the bag uh, with that. And as he started to speak more and more, uh, he became concerned about his own uh, wealth and or health and wellness through the whole situation. Several of uh, his colleagues that had been involved in the scheme uh, had mysteriously passed away uh, in the previous few months. So he was concerned for himself, and he had also started to talk to um, Brian Fogel, who made the Icarus documentary, and so. There, there was a point of no return, I think, that Grigory reached uh, where, where he knew he had crossed the line, the secret was out, 
and he was going to be a wanted man because of that. So he he took an opportunity provided to him by Brian Fogle to escape the country, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, what? Uh, how has the performance enhan- enhancement drug testing progressed since this scandal? Um, I think, you know, I think for, for listeners, it's important to realize that there have been many, many advancements in anti-doping in the last decade, uh, particularly in the last decade. And the simplest way to understand that is in the instrument technology and in the advancement in the instrument technology. You know, 10, 15 years ago, we were able to find two nanograms per milliliter, two parts per billion in a urine sample. Today, we can find half a picogram, which is half of a part per trillion. So we're able, by by that alone, the detection window has significantly expanded just because we're simply able to find smaller amounts of drugs today than we were 10 or 15 years ago. So that has advanced the system perhaps more than any, but there have also been other advancements like the one we have been discussing uh, where folks look at drugs and try to find uh, longer acting metabolites that could be a marker of use for a longer period of time. That kind of thing is always going on. Uh, And the anti-doping industry is always tracking pharmaceutical developments. uh, And if there's concerns that come through the drug development pipeline, uh, the community is often on top of that in developing uh, methods to detect those drugs before they really hit the open market and become a wider concern for athletes. Now, we always ask this question at the end of our uh, interviews with our experts. At the end of the day, if you had to pick one person or thing, it it can be a concept uh, that you think is to blame for the Russian Olympic doping scandal, who or what would that be? Boy, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, we really have built the biggest and best system that we can, but this was just an, a, an unexpected occurrence. Um, I think it's it's one that we need to be aware of systemically, and I think it's just something that we need to to watch more as an international movement. It's hard to perpetrate these things for a long period of time without people noticing. And I think for all of us to be simply aware that something on this grand scale can occur uh, is eye-opening and can allow us to look at systemic ways that we can protect against that uh, occurring in the future. Um, But, you know, I think if there was a single one person, I would probably point to, honestly, Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, he has an opportunity here. He knows what happened. Um, you can't turn back the clock. You can only progress. And I haven't seen all that much progress. I've seen the, the current situation just get kind of mired in this political question and blame game. But what the international, you know, Olympic world wants to see is that that's not going to happen again, that there's been a dedication uh, in and around that country to change the modus operandi. And I think, you know, we shouldn't forget that, you know, it wasn't more than 30 years ago where 
there were some similar things going on in and around the U.S. We weren't exactly the cleanest country ourselves uh, back in the day when anti-doping was young. So we've had to make a lot of progress ourselves as a country. Uh, we've had to become dedicated to clean sport and what it means to the athletes. And I think we've had to recognize that clean sport really has a place in sport and in solidifying its place in and around society. We don't want, none of us want uh, Olympic athletes, whether they be Russian or anyone else, to be accused of doping, to have the Olympics marred by this kind of a discussion uh, is incredibly disappointing for anybody who loves the Olympic Games and loves what they represent as far as international competition. So to, to clear all of that, I think the one person who holds the, the most amount of cards is Vladimir Putin. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, thank you for uh, helping keeping helping to keep people honest. You're most appreciated, and uh, certainly it's a it's a tough road to hoe sometimes, but it's an important one. And and athletes at the end of the day really appreciate having a clean sport environment to participate in. That's why we do what we do. So. And now to discuss, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, everyone. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi there. So how do you guys feel? I feel like, you know, we kind of nailed this one. <laughs> yes, we did send Putin to jail and we slapped regulatory theater. That's so right. I, I feel, I mean, I, I don't know what to say. We're two for two <laughs> the last two weeks. I have to say this one thing, which is that maybe if I could go back and do something differently, I would... Go back, put Putin in jail, and maybe also slap Putin while he's in jail. <laughs> Doesn't Putin have just such a slappable face? Like, he does seem like one of those guys who actually could actually take a slap really well. Like, you know, like, just just like react really quickly and then like sort of look back at you really steely. So I oh, feel yeah. like I mean, you, slapping you'd have him to tie him down. Sort of <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> he's coming back at you. have to tie him down. Otherwise, he's coming back at you hard. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. You got to get keep your hands up. That's for sure. <laughs> It's you just can't like get out of your fighting stance. You're just <laughs> always be prepared. You slap Putin, he's gonna knife you. It's true. Or someone will come up behind you and knife Maybe it you. was a good idea just yeah. to put him in jail. Just yeah. put him, him in jail. jail. <laughs> with our Don't yeah. paid, very large, extra large guards. Don't get we'll distracted with slapping. Yeah. Um but you know, I, I thought everything he had to say was so interesting. Um my favorite thing about what he said was at the end where he talked about how appreciative the athletes were. Right. And that, that to me made, makes the most sense when you think about it in terms of an athlete who's doing the right thing. Um, it's, it's got to feel like you got to feel like you want somebody on your side trying to regulate everything. And so, so that you can have a fair shot. And yeah. uh, that makes a lot of sense um, to me. Well, uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. And um, thank you to everyone for uh, listening to this episode of the aftermath. Um, stay tuned because next week we are going to be discussing the Munich 1972 Olympic massacre. Stay tuned. Powered by ACAST.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.